think one is a major driver that I always focus on, and that's if you want to understand the mean, you have to narrow the standard deviation. And as a clinical, as a CO, you know, running clinical trials or having clinical trials in your shop, you have to understand your data, not only from the mean or the average perspective, but from the standard deviations perspective. And, you know, the board used to ask me always, like, Nadim, you look at the trial and you immediately spot strengths and the weakness. And I would tell them, focus on the standard deviation. Look at the standard deviation. There's much more lessons that you can learn from looking at the deviations of the data than the mean of the signal or the average of the signal. And, uh, you know, I can go on for multiple examples, but if, for example, you want to improve your therapy, you have to understand where that variability is coming from. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey there, it's Scott Nelson, and in this episode of MedSider Radio, we're talking with Nadim Yarid, the CEO of CBRX, a pioneer in neuromodulation for cardiovascular diseases. Nadim has been CEO for 15 years and led CBRX through some major pivots and some incredible successes. Today, we're going to discuss his journey with the company, including Nadim's expertise on clinical trial strategy, startup funding, and working with FDA and CMS. But first, here's a bit more about Nadim and his background. He holds two graduate degrees and then started his career with GE. After getting his MBA at INSEAD, Nadim went on to run several business units for GE, then spent four years as the head of Medtronic's surgical navigation division. Nadim was then recruited to take the helm at CBRX in 2006 and has been CEO ever since. All right, one other quick thing to note, I'm experimenting with a new recording platform and unfortunately my audio quality isn't the greatest. We try to clean it up as much as possible, but it sort of is what it is. Nonetheless, Nadim's audio quality is solid and it's his answers that you want to hear anyway, not mine. Just wanted to call that out in advance. Okay, so before we jump into the conversation, I want to mention a few things. First, if you spent any time in the med tech or health tech space, you probably understand how difficult it may be to hire the right physician partners. Whether you need help with voice of customer research, advice around clinical study design, or something more straightforward like content review. Whatever the task, instead of spending weeks searching for physicians or paying thousands just to meet one, I highly recommend you check out FlipMD. It's a physician hiring marketplace where you can seek the expertise of thousands of physicians in one simple platform. FlipMD features 2,000 plus physicians in every specialty and their marketplace is growing every day. When you post your project and set a rate, physicians then compete for the job with bids and then you make the choice on who you want to hire. To get started, it's really simple. Just register your account, post your project, check out the bids that come in, and then hire a physician. No finder's fees, no obligation, and no risk. It's super easy. Even better for the MedSider community, FlipMD is offering to waive their normal transaction fee for the first 60 days. So just head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash FlipMD for all the details. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash FlipMD. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to medsider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from medtech experts, think about a Medsider premium membership. We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, 
prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a medtech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of MedSider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful medtech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to medsider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Nadine, welcome to MedSider Radio. Appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Scott. It's my pleasure to be here today. All right, well, um, the listeners are going to know a little bit about your personal background uh, via the introduction that I've already provided. But let's start here, because um, I'm really anxious to get to, uh, to talk about the CVRX story. Because as I mentioned before, we hit the call record button. It's a company that's sort of been on my, my radar, you know, being in the interventional slash in the vascular space for quite some time. And it seemed like there was a, a bit of a, a quiet period where all of a sudden, you know, we, we didn't, I, I didn't really hear much about CVRX. And then all of a sudden, over the past two years, you know, the company has kind of bursted uh, or sort of reemerged onto the, onto the scene, so to speak. So I, I definitely think that's going to be a fun part of the story. But before we go too deep, can you provide us a little bit more of a, um, a personal background, you know, about yourself, as well as maybe a high-level story about CVRX? Sure. And uh, Scott, stop me if I go too deep, particularly when I talk about myself, right? Uh, so I have two engineering degrees, and I started working at General Electric in uh, the research and development facility near Paris in France on 3D image reconstruction. That was my specialty, image processing. And I'm talking here early 90s. And I developed the software platform that became uh, the platform for all of the GE imaging products. So I became kind of a famous nerd within GE, got promoted. Three years later, I decided enough of R&D, enough of engineering. I'd like to do something more fun. So I took a year sabbatical, did my MBA at uh, an institution called INSEAD. It's in France. It's a, it's a good worldwide name for those who know, know INSEAD, basically, if I want to make a famous ad. Anyway, so after NCR, I came back to GE, ran a couple of businesses for them, acquired the business for them in Salt Lake City, moved with GE to Salt Lake City to do the integration. The Medtronic hired me to run one of their divisions. And after four and a half years of working for Medtronic, I was recruited by the board of directors of CVRX to become the CEO of CVRX in late of 2006. So it's been 14 years very good. Yeah, that's that's a long time ago because we're recording this here in early 2021. So, um, you know, nearly nearly mm-hmm. you know a decade and a half ago. That that's a great kind of starting point. And I want to go back to like your time at, at GE, then to Medtronic, and then to CVRX. So, two massive companies, GE and then and then Medtronic. Like, what was your kind of your reasoning for for wanting to join a startup at that time? A few things. First, when I joined Medtronic, I ran one of their best kept secrets divisions out of all of Petronic. It's the surgical navigation technology based out of Boulder in Colorado. So great location, great team. We had a lot of fun. Uh, we all used bicycles to bike to works, you know, flip-flop shorts, t-shirts in summer and so forth. So very informal, casual startup culture clashing with the rest of Medtronic. And it was the only capital equipment business, the only 510K business within Medtronic. So kind of the cycle of purchasing of these products was different than the cycle of purchasing a spinal implant or a cardiovascular pacemaker or a stent, for example. So after four and a half years running it like a startup with the resource of a large company, I really had a lot of fun doing this. And we explored the possibility of spinning off uh, Medtronic Navigation and running it as a separate business. And 
after nine months of discussions with Medtronic, we figured out it's very difficult to uh, disentangle uh, the Medtronic navigation business from their other businesses like the spine business of Medtronic. So at that time, I was already in discussions with these few investors, and one, one of those investors happened to be the major shareholder of CVRX, and they talked to me about CVRX and what they're looking for, and there was a match. So I decided to say goodbye to a great job at Medtronic, where I had a lot of fun, and go to the unknown, running a startup on my own. That's great. And it sounds like the kind of the environment there in, in Boulder when you were at Medtronic was, was maybe a little bit similar to, to startup, maybe with obviously with, with a lot of resources at hand, but it sounds like it was pretty you know, fast moving, but yet fairly casual at the same time. No? Exactly. Very good. Exactly. Right, let's, let's circle back around to like you joining. You're, you're being recruited over to CVRX. This is kind of the kind of mid you know 2006, five, 2005, 2006 timeframe for those following along. And let's talk a little bit about more about like the early Barrowson therapy because if my memory serves me right, and I and I needed to catch up uh, a little bit in preparation for this interview, but you guys initially started out with you know trying to solve for uh, resistant hypertension and have since sort of pivoted what it appears to be a pivot into uh, into heart failure. So one, am I correct in that? And then two, maybe tell us a little bit more about like how the idea for the original Barrowstem even came about. So let me start with the second part of your question. Uh, the Barrowstem technology used to be called Rios. So the uh, category for this type of product is called the Baroreflex Activation Therapies, BAT in short. The uh, founder of Cigarax, Dr. Rob Kival, was actually exploring carotid stents back in the year 2000. And he noticed that every time an interventional cardiologist inflates the balloon to deploy the stent, blood pressure fluctuates and often drops down precipitously. And he started researching this more and more and figured out, you know, there is a relationship in here between those better receptors located in the carotid artery and blood pressure, among others. By 2001, he founded CVRX. 2002, he started doing animal studies, both in hypertension and heart failure. Now, let me take you back to 2002. That was the year when Medtronic was introducing the first biventricular pacing device, or CRT, to treat heart failure. At the time, the world did not know much about heart failure and what works, what doesn't work with CRT. So the company in 2002 and early 2003 decided, why compete with Medtronic, right? hypertension or resistant hypertension is a wide open space. Let's go after resistant hypertension. The company did a phenomenal good job in the early 2004, 2005, and 2006 on defining the exact need, creating some of the terminologies that is still used today. For example, what is the definition of a responder for a device-based therapy in hypertension? So all of those early work was created all by CVRX. So when I was hired in 2006, the company had designed the last trial but has not yet run it. So I was recruited to run this trial, like running a business. And we did. And when we get the data from the trial in around early 2010, we had great efficacy data that led to an HDE down the road, a humanitarian device exemption approval by FDA. But two things slow us down. Number one, the safety profile of the procedure was not to our liking. There were about 9% of the patients complaining from sensations of numbness in the jaw after the procedure for a period of up to six months. 
while this could be acceptable for a major surgery like carotid and Now, to treat resistant hypertension, we felt that, uh, you know, the 9.6% of those complaints, that's not going to fly. And the second element was all of the hype around renal denervation as an alternative approach for hypertension. Now, we as a company have experimented with surgical denervation of the renal arteries to understand the impact, and we characterize it very well internally. And we know exactly how it's different, useful, but very different than what we're doing. But the market at large did not see that. And there was so much hype around renal denervation in 2010 that we decided as a company, like, hey, let's slow down a bit here, go back to the drawing board, try to make the procedure less invasive to remove any uh, nerve damage, you know, that created those numbing uh, sensations in the jaws and focus on heart failure, right? And I, at the time, I had to make a decision as a CEO of the company. I can go and fight head-to-head with all of those 80-plus companies doing renal innovation, including Medtronic, Boston Scientific, St. Jude, in hypertension. Or I can go in heart failure. Heart failure, you might say, Nadine, but you will be competing with, you know, all of those biventricular pacing companies. Well, not anymore, because by 2010, the world has figured out that biventricular pacing only work in a sub-segment of heart failure, the patients with a wide QRS syndrome. That means on their electrocardiogram, the first mountain is flatter, is wider. In those patients, a CRT device works. But if the mountain is narrow and tall in the electrocardiogram, those patients don't have a solution. So we decided to focus on those patients and two reasons for that. Number one, Unmet need, severe morbid disease, right? From a payer's perspective, health systems perspective, and so forth, it's very compelling. And second, I was very concerned personally that if renal derivation is successful, I will always be trying to defend why we have a place for our therapy. And if renal derivation is not successful, which after looking at the Medtronic trial design, I was convinced that they will hit a, a roadblock, the market will become toxic, particularly the investment market. So I recommended to the board to slow down on hypertension and accelerate on heart failure. Now, we do have a pivotal trial that has received the idea approval from FDA in hypertension that we put it on hold in 2013 to focus all of our resources, all of our money, all of our employees on heart failure. And we did the phase one, phase two, phase three studies in sequence from 2011 with the new technology, the new platform, the new procedure. And we got approval in 2019 by FDA. So that period of seven to eight years, we, you know, kind of kept a low profile by design. And that's why, Scott, you may have kind of forgotten about us yeah. for a while until we got the FDA approval. Yeah, you were, you were, it seemed like you were sitting on the sidelines, but that was, uh, by the sounds of that story, doesn't, certainly doesn't seem like you were doing anything like sitting on the sidelines. And I, I laugh and I, I, you know, I, I have, you know, I'm kind of you know, tongue in cheek, but the story that you just just described, Nadine, is is incredible, and it, it on a number of different fronts. But it it feels like that decision to pivot in a way, because I would imagine probably through that first clinical trial, you you were confident enough in the therapy for heart failure. But it seems like such a big decision, especially considering you know the capital that was maybe already raised and the capital needed to move forward with a, a focus on heart failure. Did it did it seem as big of a, a decision at the time as as it does now? Yeah, no, it was. And many reasons for that, Scott, you hit on some of them. It's going to the unknowns. 
and abandoning the known. So we know exactly what we did wrong in hypertension. We know how to fix it, and we started down this path, right? Heart failure, we didn't know what we did not know back then. That's number one. Number two, if you look at heart failure, since the advent of CRT, very few therapies have been successful. So there was this drought of any novel development in the medical device for heart failure. And some people figured or start thinking that this is never going to work. And if you remember, renal denervation was tried on heart failure with failures in 2010 and 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, vagal nerve stimulation, there was failures by bar scientific. Spinal cord stimulations, failure by Medtronic and Sanju. So it was scary to go after the unknown. But at the same time, we had a lot of, you know, experimental data and we were comfortable and confident about the mechanism of action of our device uh, that we decided to go for it. Money was always difficult to raise, but, uh, you know, there is only one advice I'll give to any entrepreneur is pick your early investors with extreme care. Money has a color in a way where the early investors will either carry you forward in a good way as a company, or they will abandon you, mid, you know, at the middle of the way and have you be going from a struggle to a struggle to a struggle. In the case of CVRX, new enterprise associates have been from the beginning a steady supporter. I brought in Johnson & Johnson uh, in 2007 through their development corporation, their venture fund, and they also have been a steady supporter since then. So with those two, access to be able to raise money Always difficult, but not impossible, even at the height of the drought of funding, like 2014 or 13, where VC money was drying out, we still had access to be able to raise money. Yeah, that's great. I I hear so many, you know, med tech entrepreneurs like yourself mention that, like pick and choose your investors wisely. And I I mean, it seems like you're sort of a poster child for that answer, really. And I I, I say that in, in kind of like the, the counter to that is like oftentimes as you as you know raising early stage funds isn't isn't easy right series you know C C rounds series A rounds et cetera I mean it's it's hard it's hard uh, enough just to generate interest but you're what I'm hearing you say is like make sure those investors that you uh, that you take on are are really partners and are there for the for the long haul um, and it seems like that that's definitely proven to be incredibly helpful for you and CBRX exactly exactly listen yeah. many entrepreneurs. Uh, focus on dilution and valuation of these early rounds. They, these are important elements, no question about it, right? But more important than this is the quality of the investors that they're bringing on board. And they have to ask themselves questions. Do they want to be a larger percent owner of a very tiny fish or you know, a, a smaller percent owner, but a huge you know, whale? Uh, that's the difference between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 um interesting that you say that. I, I recently um uh did an interview with Renee Ryan, who you probably know, maybe even from your from your your days with uh you know raising raising money in partnership with J and J's corporate development arm. Um, she was you know she's a serial med tech entrepreneur. Spent a fair amount of time at at J and J. Is now running Cala Health. But she said the exact same thing um in regards to uh the mistake that founders often make. You know when it when it comes to you know raising money, is they concern themselves too much with dilution. At the expense of of working with you know truly great partners that are going to be there for the for the follow up rounds maybe when the when the hurdles uh, you know get get that you need to cross get taller and taller so uh, I find it super interesting that you're you're echoing that, that her her very same thoughts. I have tremendous respect for Renee. I've known her even before her days at J and J, and of course during her say, you know tenure at J and J D C of course, but even before that when she was at Jeffries. Yeah, well, very cool. I mean that, that that's a phenomenal story, and I can't. 
if hearing you tell it, it sounds almost, I mean, it sounds, it sounds difficult, but I, I can't imagine how, uh, you know, those decisions that you were making at that time, but, but pretty, pretty, you know, powerful, uh, uh, nonetheless, especially to see, you know, kind of where, where you're at with CBRX and kind of where, where you, where you kind of, how you've turned the company, um, into these, into this different direction, into the unknown, as you pointed out. A couple of other kind of follow-up questions that are a little bit more in line with, with some of those, um, some of those early phases, getting the kind of the Barrowst and, uh, technology where it's at really revolve around, um, clinical and reg. Right. It sounds like you have vast experience with both, but especially when it comes to clinical trials. So on that note, I, and I don't want to paint too broad of a, a brush here with this question, but when it comes to you know, laying out that strategy uh, in terms of generating clinical evidence for, for, your, for a device like Barrowston, right, that's innovative, like what are your general pieces of advice for other entrepreneurs that are kind of in that same boat, you know, in the early stages, but, but really trying to make sure that, that they're, um, the plan that's, that's in place is on, is on solid ground moving forward? Yeah, there are a lot of lessons uh, over the years, but one, I think one is a major a driver that I always focus on, and that's if you want to understand the mean, you have to narrow the standard deviation. And as a clinical, as a CEO, you know, running clinical trials or having clinical trials in your shop, you have to understand your data, not only from the mean or the average perspective, but from the standard deviations perspective. And, you know, the board used to ask me always, like, Nadim, you look at the trial and you immediately spot strengths and the weakness. And I would tell them, focus on the standard deviation. Look at the standard deviation. There's much more lessons that you can learn from looking at the deviations of the data than the mean of the signal or the average of the signal. And, uh, you know, I can go on for multiple examples. But if, for example, you want to improve your therapy, you have to understand where that variability is coming from to figure out what is the patient population that will allow you to narrow this variability and what are the parameters of your device. For example, if you have a programmable device, how do you program it to change, to narrow that variability patient to patient? So you've got the patient to patient variability and within the same patient, the longitudinal variability. Then you can figure out, all right, what's the patient population in whom this therapy benefits the most? You probably heard the name of Dr. Brownwald, right? Uh, uh, you know, his father of the modern cardiology, all of these cardiology books mm. with his name, you know, right? So one time uh, we invited him to chair one of our symposiums. I think it was 2011 in Paris. And I was talking with him after the symposium. And I've asked him the question about heart failure and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And he gave me one analogy that to this day is still ringing in my ear. He said, Nadim, if you have a great therapy, like a, let's assume you have a superb drug that works in malaria, but you did not know that it was for malaria. You only thought that this reduces fever. And you assume that this is a fever-reducing treatment. You go, you test it on the white population of patients with fever, you'll see that 3% of the patients are doing great in it, and 97% have no response. You abandon the therapy that it doesn't work. And in fact, you may have had a miracle cure for malaria, but you did not identify your patient population or the disease properly. So focus on identifying the patient population or the disease or the phenotype of the disease, whichever way you look at it, so that you can narrow this variability. And then you can focus about whether you have the right therapy, the right trial, and so forth. Maybe I'm, I'm speaking Chinese in here, but for all of those yeah. averse in clinical trials and statistics, they would <laughs> understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. That, that, your answer is actually, I, I wouldn't have expected that. You know, I was, I was maybe thinking that you'd answer with, you know, some more high level thoughts, but like, I love the fact that you went kind of more into the weeds and, 
there's so much to like gain there. But the fact that I, I mean, I, I'm completely, although I'm certainly no clinical expert, and I'm certainly not a data scientist, I'm not a statistician. But I, I think most people can kind of understand where you're, where you're going, right? With looking at that variability, I think that's probably the key, the key word, maybe through the lens of standard deviation, looking at that variability in order to better understand like where your therapy really works, you know, does it work as yeah. intended? Or is it working in a, in a different fashion, maybe that, that, that you would have otherwise expected? Yeah. So I, I love that. I love, I love the fact that, that that answer was... Listen, listen, you, you, you gave me a, soft, a softball here. Let me try to answer with an easier question and an easier lesson for, you know, the general public in here. One of the things that we often do as an error in clinical trials is we do a single arm phase one trial, first in man, you know, 20 to 30 patients, some often in Europe, now in the United States. We derive information. And then we go from phase one, we jump into a phase three, a randomized control trial, hundreds of patients. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars and we bet big and we don't have a plan B if this trial ends up hitting a wall. A lot of things could go wrong. And 80% of the time, what goes wrong is the control arm. You hear it often, people telling you, oh, my placebo arm or the control arm did better than expected. Well, yeah, when you were running your first man study, did you quantify what the control arm would do? No. Do it. Instead of doing 20 patients, do 40, 20 versus 20. Mm. Collect that data because you need this to quantify, to understand what you're up to when you run your pivotal trial or do like what we did, which is a little bit more expensive, phase one, phase two, and phase three. And the phase two will be like a mini pivotal trial, randomized control, so that you can fine-tune the size of the efficacy, the patient population, buckle it up, and then you make so few changes, if at all, between the phase two and phase three. So your phase three is just a repeat of the phase two, but a larger scale, and then you get the FDA approval. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. I love that. Yeah, and that's, I, well, I love your first answer, but the, the second one is, is even, like, <laughs> arguably even better for, for maybe, uh, you know, the, the lay person like me when it comes to clinical clinical trials and, and clinical studies, but I love that. It's almost, um, I, lo- I love the approach of viewing it. I mean, the, the phase kind of uh, approach to clinical studies is, is certainly nothing new, but your point about like the mistake that most or most people get in trouble is not fully understanding the control arm. And by sort of, you know, I don't know, making, making hacks for lack of a better description, or maybe trying to, more, trying to find a more efficient way around your answers, or maybe even quite honestly, maybe to save money, um, that may like hurt you in the long run if you don't fully understand that that control arm. I, I I love that. So I guess to come full circle on on that answer, Nadim, would you like let's take a semi well funded, you know, fairly early stage med tech company? Would you almost always recommend kind of this this three phase approach where the phase two looks very similar to phase three, it's just phase three is that scale? Or would you, I mean, would there, would there be, you know, situations where you make a recommend to kind of trim down and, and try to get away with, you know, two phases? Interestingly, right now, we are conducting a phase one, two, and three studies all combined into one at CRX for the mm-hmm. next generation. What has happened between 2011 and 2021 is a lot of progress on the science of conducting clinical trials and within FDA and the culture of FDA of being willing and open to listen to creative ideas and take the hard road that could be faster to get those therapies approved faster to the patients who need them. And that did not happen overnight. Uh, That cultural revolution within the FDA, I thought uh, Dr. Jeff Schurer, who's the head of the CDRH, started down this path, I think around 2008, maybe later, maybe 2009, 
he figured out that he needs to, you know, move that chip in a, in a big way. And the cardiology group within the CDRH, within FDA, was the first to jump into this, says, you know what, we want to be on top of it. And let me give you examples. Ten years ago, you would sit down with FDA and they would say yes or no. That's it. You offer a solution and they'll either say yes or no. Today, you sit down with FDA, you offer a solution. They may say yes, but have you considered those or no? Look at this. Look at that. Read this paper. Maybe you've considered that approach. And that's a big difference because then it's a collaborative environment between FDA and and the industrial sponsor of the trial to go back and forth and back and forth and leverage the best know-how between the two to figure out an approach that makes sense. If we had the FDA we have today, back in 2012, when we were designing the phase two trial, I would have done phase two and phase three as a single sequence, like two phases in the same trial without the interruption of flow of patients. And that would save two to three years in the process. Right now with modern methods like, you know, Bayesian borrowing and others, a lot of tools are available to clinical trial sponsors and to FDA to do these uh, methods. That's great. No, I, I love that. And I, I hear so many other, um, you know, medtech leaders, um, whether they're in early stage companies or, or, or at, at large strategics, um, echo that same sentiment that it's imperative to work in a collaborative fashion with FDA. But I, I, love, I love the fact that you've, you've been through that and are seeing some of those changes even at, even at FDA um, that are allowing, you know, kind of you know, more, more, more efficient ways that are, that are better when it comes to clinical clinical trial design. Yeah, the conventional wisdom 10 years ago, or 15 years ago, when I joined CVRX, the conventional wisdom everybody gave me is don't ask the FDA because you may not like the answer. Mm -hmm. And right now, my approach is the absolute opposite decision. 180 degrees is ask Mm -hmm. the FDA. Ask them often, ask them early. Don't wait, don't assume, don't guess. Ah, That's great, I love that. Uh, especially considering that it's the exact opposite, as you mentioned, than, than, it, than it was maybe eight or nine years ago. On that note, if we, I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit, but they, they, you know, they, I think it allows, you know, the, where we're at in the discussion kind of allows for a, a transition into, you know, um, insurance covers and reimbursement. And I know that recently CVRX, um, your team announced that you received a, a CMS NTAP. Um, so can you maybe explain, like, well, for people that are unfamiliar with, with the NTAP program, maybe explain what that is. And I know um, if you can, maybe even go back in time just a few years ago when I think you actually received breakthrough, a breakthrough device designation as well. And I, I know there was a bit of a, a time gap there between the device designation, I think, and, and, the, and the receipt of, a, of, the, of the NTAP. But can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So let me start with the breakthrough designation. 2013, I think there was some effort between Agramed, I was part of this, and the staff of uh, Congressman uh, Fred Upton from Upper Michigan about this idea of a house resolution called, at the time, the 21st Century Cures. And we've articulated 10 points that we needed to see to accelerate pathways for those therapies that are you know, needed by patients in the United States. The Congress took those on and accepted or at least embraced or adopted the FDA-related provisions. In the same time, Dr. Shuren was working on his own within his group to try to figure out a similar pathway at FDA. And we got invited in 2014, three CEOs, to have this discussion with FDA and give them feedback about it. It was the CEO of J&J, St. Jude, and myself. 
And it was around middle of 2014 and, uh, or early 2014. And by early 2015, I think April 2015, FDA issued the guidance called the Expedited Access Pathway. When the 21st Century Cures proposal became law under President Obama in December of 16, it was called the Cures Act. The Expedited Access Pathway from FDA was renamed to Breakthrough Technologies and aligned with the law. So that was an administrative effort that converged with a legislative effort, and they end up in the same place at the end. When the proposal from FDA, the Expedited Access Pathway, was published in April of 15, of course, I knew about it, right? So uh, we took a month to analyze our data and submit it to FDA seeking a designation. And FDA, they had 30 days and they responded favorably to our designation. They gave us the designation. That's why we received our designation from FDA in June of 2015. We kept it silent for a few months. I don't think we've announced it until we finalized the trial with FDA. So it was probably toward the end of the year. Now we use that expedite access pathway designation from FDA to work collaboratively with FDA. We were the first project. FDA was still learning what it meant internally. There were a lot of issues to figure out and a lot of education to have happened within FDA that we participated in, but also we were learning. So it was painful, but at the same time, very uh, interesting uh, as we were you know, plotting in here what it what would mean from you know, basic statistics, science, multiple shutters, goal, et cetera. So that's the genesis of this breakthrough device access pathway. It's more to do with FDA than with CMS. Now, I was chairman of Agromed Excel at the time which was the Agromed branch for smaller companies, serving the need of smaller companies. We started down the path to saying, okay, the, our proposal back in 2013 had elements of the breakthrough technologies for CMS, and we still want to go through the legislatively and administratively. So we kept working with the administ successive administrations, and it was under Commissioner Seema Verma and Secretary Alex Azar that finally we started seeing some of those, you know, percolating down. Now, those are bipartisan efforts with bipartisan support. And the idea was that if FDA is doing everything possible to shorten the pathway to approval for those breakthrough therapies because they've needed, we're talking about access. And can we have access if those products are not paid for? The answer is no. So we need to have CMS on board. And part of those effort. At the time, I became chairman of the board of Agromed, of all of Agromed. So I was on the front line of discussions with, you know, the administration, so with HHS, CMS, with the White House, and so forth, to try to get those implemented, whether they are for payments or for coverage for breakthrough technologies. So that's why in your mind right now, you associate directly breakthrough with coverage of CMS, but the initial was all about FDA and then CMS came this past couple of years, actually. So February of, no, February, we got the commitment. April, CMS announced this program that for breakthrough technologies, the NTAP and TPT additional payments will be simplified and accelerated. So what is NTAP, new technology add-on payment? This program has existed for two decades. It's a way for CMS to provide incremental payments to novel products when they don't have yet a payment level associated with them. And that payment is used to be 50%. Now it's 65% of what the hospital is paying for the device. So basically the CMS will reimburse the procedure cost plus 65% of the device. So the hospital still will make some losses, 
on it with an end tap, you know, give or take, depending on the margin they make on the procedure, but at least it's not all of the loss, right? So that's the yeah. new technology add on payment. TPT is a similar program for the outpatient procedures. It's a transitional pass through. Both are for three years, and the transitional pass through, actually, the hospital will get paid the procedure cost and the full device cost for outpatient procedure. CVRX received both the NTAP and the TPT incremental payment from CMS last year. The NTAP came into force for us on October 1st, 2020, and the TPT on January 1st of this year. So right now, we would benefit from both of those. Now, not we. Our customers would benefit from both of those programs, whether it's a name patient or outpatient procedure. Now, that's on the payment side. On the coverage side, CMS also proposed in August last year a program called MCIT, which is basically a four-year national coverage determination for breakthrough technologies from the time they get FDA approval. And within those four years, the company would collect claim data and more evidence to submit the case to CMS to make it permanent. And very few products actually receive a full national coverage determination. And that's a great thing for breakthrough technologies. Uh, Now, of course, it's not all breakthrough technologies. It has to fit within the criteria where there are some products that are, for example, if it's a capital equipment, they don't have an NCD. It's part of the, uh, the, you know, the durable payment mechanism is different. So we're talking for implantable devices. It's pretty straightforward. You know, breakthrough device, you will be part of NCIT. You will have a four-year national coverage determination. Uh, so it's not the way I understand, and I, I certainly don't want to get too much into the weeds when it, when it comes to, uh, you know, coverage and reimbursement, because I know there's a lot of complexity here, but is it kind of an obvious for CMS to grant NCIT if you already kind of meet the sort of the requirements for NTAP and TPTP, the, the, or the transition pass payment? Scott, you're asking a very good question, very relevant question. <laughs> From my perspective, the answer is obviously yes. Now, of course, there is another side to this. Right, And the other side of it was the following. Who determines if a product is a breakthrough or not? Well, it's FDA. Who's paying the tab? It's CMS. And when FDA says, yes, this product is needed, often they define the patient population who would benefit from the therapy. CMS wants to know if this patient population is benefit from the therapy, are there other therapies on the peripheries? So it could be different patient population, right? So this match is not always 100%. That's why it requires a lot of discussions between FDA and CMS about this pro- program early on. And it was kudos in here, big kudos to CMS to embark on this and trust FDA with that decision that will tie the hands of CMS to given this. Now, granted, it's only four years. Granted, there's only a few products. And granted, we know with medical devices, even with coverage, even everything, it's not like pharmaceutical products where the day it's approved, every single doctor will be prescribing it. In medical device, we have to train physicians to do the procedure and we have mm-hmm. less resources. So the, usually the first four years of any product, even when you're in a large company, you're not going to sell billions of dollars, right? You'll be selling millions, maybe hundreds of millions. So the overall impact at the level of CMS and level of the budget is not that negative, even if they're taking a risk with us. So that, that was the point that we're always trying to make. It's only for four years, and during four years with medical device, it's a gradual progression 
of uptake. Even the most successful ones, they would not get to billions of dollars. So in the big scheme of things, it's okay to take that risk to accelerate access to the U.S. patients who need this therapy. Got it. I mean, that, 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 that's incredible feedback considering you were so early, you know, with the breakthrough device designation. And I think you mentioned it wasn't even necessarily called that in the, uh, you know, in the, in the early days. But as, a, as kind of a, um, sort of an add-on question, right, we're talking about CMS. But, you know, with your patients or the patient population that's ideal for CBRX, is it an op- does having these, these types of designations and, you know, being eligible for MTAP and the, and the transitional pass-through payment uh, programs, is it that much easier for the private payers than to get on board with, with coverage and reimbursement? Uh, we don't know yet. We don't okay. know yet. So right now with private payers, um, our, let's put it this way, our patients or patients who would want to benefit from our therapy have to submit a request before they get the procedure. Uh, this process is called prior authorizations. We're having good success with it, with a good rate of positive response, but it delays the process. Sometimes it takes one or two months. So patients will yeah. now have to wait this time. And in some diseases, you can't always afford to wait one or two months before you get the therapy. So MSIT, you know, this program to get the NCD for four years, hopefully should be an open door for the private payers to look at it and say, you know what? Yes, we understand that's a smaller number of products, smaller potential financial impact on us, definitely needed for those patients. Let's try to figure out the program with them. I don't know if it will be the same thing or something similar, but I encourage all 378 payers in the United States to look at this program carefully and try to create their own version of it or just copy it as is. Got it. On that note, and I, w- I want to make sure that we allow enough time here for the uh, kind of the more personal rapid fire questions. But on that note, I think that's super interesting that you brought that up. Why isn't there, or maybe more importantly, like what will it take to get private payers to be more in line with, with CMS when it comes to these, uh, these types of, you know, access initiatives? Well, they are private for-profit companies, most of them. So they can do whatever they want, most of them, right? Yeah. Now, not for the Medicare Advantage, but for their own patients, particularly mm-hmm. for closed-loop systems, right? They can decide what is a high priority or less of a high priority for them. Uh, that said, FDA and CMS are plotting away in here, saying, listen, it's not for every therapy. It's only those very few that are serving a need that doesn't exist in the marketplace. We FDA certify the data is good and on and on and on. So what could a private payer look for more than this? I don't know. Uh, frankly, I, mm-hmm. I really don't know. I think, you know, FDA and CMS are providing here a blueprint for them to copy. Now, again, it's interesting how times change. 15 years ago, we used to say, ah, give me a private payer any day of the year. Just don't, you know, we're never going to get anything with CMS done. Remember? Now mm-hmm. it's the other way around. It's like, okay, CMS is on the forefront and the private payers are lagging behind. Things have changed. Uh, from CVRX perspective, we're very happy because two-thirds of our patients are above the age of 65. They're for CMS patients. And this is carrying the day for us. But... If a company is providing, for example, a pediatric product or, you know, products more for teenagers, right, or even the young adults like sports medicine or others, a breakthrough technologies might not help them from a reimbursement perspective yep. because if they don't have CMS patients, it's a moot point for them. Yeah. So interesting how that, that paradigm has, has changed where now CMS is at the, at the forefront. But, I mean, nonetheless, it, it, they're awesome programs, and, and you made a really, really great point that even though – 
FDA, your, your device may be eligible, and FDA has this breakthrough device kind of designation program. Without access, it, it kind of doesn't matter. You know, I, I don't want to over, or I, I'm sorry, I don't want to underappreciate the breakthrough device designation, but if, I mean, you and I both know that if, if hospitals um, aren't willing or can't pay for it, you know, access is going to be an issue, you know, so a, a major issue. So um, I love the fact that you, uh, um, how you kind of weaved, <laughs> weaved those, those two things together. On that note, let's, let's transition to kind of the last more, like business related question, I should say, and it really revolves around around fundraising. And I know you mentioned earlier, we talked a lot about this, the, the, how, how important it is to identify partners that are going to be there to support you in those follow up rounds, especially if the company needs to needs to um, pivot or, or iterate. Is there anything else when it comes to raising raising money that you think is important for other, you know, med tech entrepreneurs to understand whether they're in the early stages or maybe whether in, you know, follow up, you know, series B or series C rounds? Oh, absolutely. You know what they say in real estate, right? Location, location, location. In, you know, in in the entrepreneurial field, it's about management, management, management. Okay, so if you're an entrepreneur and you did not pay enough attention to the team you're assembling together, no matter how good your product is or your data, it doesn't matter. You will get hurt. If you're an entrepreneur and you think you're not well, you know, rounded as a CEO, bring in a professional CEO to support you. But definitely assemble a very solid team next to you. Go and get the best. Don't try to argue about the money. Go and get the best talent that you can convince to join you. And if you are able to convince a talented VP to join you, it's helping you in two ways. Number one, in the execution, of course, internally. But number two, sending a strong signal to the investors that this VP came in from X, Y, and Z and trusted by looking at the stories, trusted what they're seeing, and they invested in their time, in their career, in their, you know, with their money and everything to join you. So, yeah, mm-hmm. as an entrepreneur, that should be your priority number one to ten before anything else, assembling a very solid team. That's great. And I, I love the fact that the second point that you mentioned about bringing in the best, you know, I, I immediately kind of gravitate towards, yes, of course, because they can execute like, like you know, better than most, but... You also mentioned the fact that it serves as a really, really solid signal to the market that, you know, you're serious about making, you know, making an imprint on the market you're after. And so I, uh, I love that. That's a great, that's a great answer. With that said, I know we're, we're uh, kind of running a little bit short on time. So um, before we get to the, those, those last rapid fire questions, Nadim, when you think about CBRX over the next one to two years, what are you most excited about? Well, we're entering the next phase right now, which is the adoption phase for our therapy by patients, right? And our success will be counted by the number of lives that we impact. And to get this done, we've you know done all of the clinical trials, all of the R&D before that, the experiments, etc., all of the legwork that I described with CMS. And now it's all about us. It's all about our execution to go out and educate the patients, educate the physicians, train the physicians about this, educate hospitals, convince them to embark on our therapy, and so forth. So. It's going to be an exciting phase right now for CBLX. Really exciting. I've yeah. been waiting for this now 15 years. <laughs> That's great. I, I can only imagine, especially considering the, the journey that you've been on. Um, incredible. But listen, yeah, especially to be a- Scott, I did not know clinical trials before I joined CBLX. I did not know implantable. I did not know cardiology. Why did the board hire me? I have no idea. I think they liked me. I don't know, right? But the fact is, I'm, I'm a commercial guy. You're like, you know, marketing and sales is what I did. My Previous jobs at before before Medtronic at GE, I was running sales and marketing for the X-ray business, the X-ray imaging business for General Electric, and I missed that. 
right? And now I'm back into the game. So I'm having a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I can I can I can imagine, especially if you're a commercial guy. I, I am too. Like I said, you know, my entire career in in sales and marketing positions, and that's really where where my wheelhouse is. But I love the fact that like you, I would have never guessed that you didn't really spend much time in the world of of clinical trials, clinical study management. Like you, you sound like an expert, and I think probably that proves out the notion. That, that probably proves out the notion. No. That, like, well, I've got you, those yellow books: clinical trials for dummy and statistics for dummies. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, lo- I love it. I mean, you're you're proving the point that like you can learn so much better when you're actually doing it. You know, versus just mm-hmm. you know sort of, you know, reading and understanding something academically. I mean, I, I certainly believe that to be ca- the case, that the ramp to uh, to pick up on a certain topic is so much faster when you're actually sort of playing in the sandbox, if you will. But uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Hey everyone, if you're looking for a contract manufacturer that specializes in minimally invasive interventional devices, you need to consider Switchback Medical. Here's why. First, their world-class engineering team has deep domain expertise in the endovascular space. Think of pretty much any interventional device and a switchback engineer was probably involved in its creation. I can't think of another R&D partner with the sheer amount of knowledge and experience they have in the vascular arena. Switchback can be your single source solution for all your contract design and manufacturing needs. Second, Switchback recently launched Biosim Innovations, a full-on biosimulation lab that uses human and animal models, as well as cell, tissue, and organ cultures. It's the perfect lab for physician training, preclinical model development, and device testing. Switchback Biosim Innovations provides a phenomenal sandbox environment for scientists, engineers, and physicians to innovate together. Demand is incredibly high for an experienced design and manufacturing partner like Switchback Medical, but for the MedSider community, Switchback is offering to expedite your quote to the top of the stack. Just visit medsiderradio.com forward slash switchback. There you'll find the best ways to get in touch with me, and I'll personally provide an intro. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash switchback. Okay, let's get back to the rest of the conversation. In the last few minutes here, Nadima, I'd like to transition, I should say, to, uh, to some more personal kind of fun, fun questions. There's, there's only three of them. And, you, you know, you can expound on your answers if you want to, or you can, you know, you know answer them with an uh, answer, which is, you know, quick statements as well. But let's start out with, um, with advice, right? So we talked we talk a lot about advice already. But if there's like one thing that you would, you would offer to other, you know, med tech or healthcare entrepreneurs that are going to listen to this conversation, what's like the single biggest thing that you, you think they should know? You know, uh, when you're, I'm talking here to entrepreneurs who've been working in a large company. The band of emotions you have in a large company is very narrow. As a CEO of a small company, you can go very high up, exhilarating, and also very down when you hit that obstacle. So your band of emotion is much wider. So your goal as a CEO is to narrow this band of emotions so you can keep your team steady. That's great. Love it. Um, all right. Second question is around books, resources, et cetera. Are there any like influential books that really stand out or, or maybe, you know, the, the book that you've, you know, you most often recommend to other, other entrepreneurs? Oh yeah, a lot. But I, I mentioned those statistics for dummies, right? No, seriously. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> you know, when, when I was at, at GE, uh, you know, Jack Welch at the time was, you know, the manager of the century, right? We learned a lot from him. And since then, Bill George of Netronic also wrote a couple of books about leadership. You know, you, you have to go through. I've been very impressed 
with few authors I've met uh, over the years. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, for example, met him uh, one time at uh, I've met impressive guys. You probably had, you know, you read some of his books, you know, The Tipping Point mm-hmm. and The What Dark Saw, etc. Many of those books, it's not just one time that you read them. Uh, you have to go back, uh, or, you know, on them over and over. The other set of books, Clay Christensen, you know, The Innovator's Dilemma, mm-hmm. The Innovator's Solution, uh, actually, there is a third. I think it's called the prescription dilemma as well. The third one, very interesting. And every time you know you read this first time, and then five years later you go back to these books, and then you look like, wow, okay, and now I get it. I should look at this problem mm-hmm. in this way, different way. Another classic that I'd recommend to everybody is Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. Crossing the Chasm is about you know the life cycle we start from getting adopted by the innovators, early adopters, and then you go to the early mass market, right? And, and then the laggers toward the end. The problem with this, most products end up being innovators and maybe early adopters, and then pff, nothing. You hit the chasm, mm-hmm. right? So crossing that chasm requires a different way of thinking, and you have to transition a CEO, even your hat, from how do you sell to innovators to how do you sell to the early adopters in the mass market. Yeah. I love it. And I, I couldn't agree more with, uh, with your comment around like ha- even going back to some of these books, like you mentioned Clayton, the, the, like Clayton Christensen. I was just having a conversation, I think it might have been, even been yesterday, with a partner that I'm working on a, on a startup with. And um, we were talking about this very same thing. Um, and it was largely within the context of kind of these procedural movements that are happening from the hospital to the, to the you know, from the hospital, the office-based lab setting. And it's, it's very disruptive um, on a number of different fronts. But we were talking about this very same concept. It's like, oh, I thought that's what Clayton Christensen meant. You know what I mean? That's a perfect example. You know, mm-hmm. so I love, I love mm-hmm. the fact that, it's like, you know, I read that book, I don't know how many, how long ago? It was years ago. And then it's like, it's, you know, it's like, oh, okay, that, that, that concept uh, is beginning to materialize in my head. So I love it. Last question, uh, Nadine. If you, uh, if you could start over in your, um, your mid to late 20s, let's kind of, uh, you know, take the time, the med side of time machine back to that, to that, that period. Um, is there anything that, that you would do differently? Oh, yeah, a lot of things. Oh, man, uh, where do I start? <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I, I go from the, uh, the the first thing that when you look back, if you think there's nothing that you could have done better, there's something wrong with you. Because there is n- absolutely no way that you did not learn something new since then that you could have applied to do things different. Now, would I have gone to a startup earlier or later? Would I have gone to GE or Medtronic, I don't know, right? It's very hard to think. But would I have done a few things different? I just give you an example about clinical trial. If I know today, if I knew back in 2012 what I know today about clinical trial, I would have done phase two and phase three in the same sequence and I would educated FDA why they should look at it and then ended up maybe FDA accepting it five years earlier, this concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's not, great. Yeah, a lot of things. I was, yeah. uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, I love no, no, I love it. I love it. I love your example that um, there's there's always something to to learn and how how true that is. So with that with that said, we're up against the clock. I can't thank you enough, Nadine. I'll have you hold on the line, but I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your out of your schedule, especially considering all of the activity um, at CBRX right now. It's really fun to see to see where you know where you've taken that company and the and the rest of the, the the team. You know, it's pretty. To your point earlier, you're at, you're at an exciting exciting phase, and I, I certainly wish you the best um, here over the next next uh, next few years. But thanks again for for taking time out of your schedule to do this. Um, and for every everyone listening, if you're interested in interviews just like this one with, with Nadine, um, conversations with other you know, proven MedSec and, and healthcare leaders, go ahead and, uh, and head over to MedSec.com and sign up for the uh, free email newsletter. We'll let you know um, when the next uh, discussion 
goes live. And in addition, all of the uh, in the in the show notes for this particular episode, um, if you if you just go to MedSider and uh, and um, use the search bar for CVRX, you'll find show notes to this episode, and we'll link up to their website as well as some of these other um, other topics that we we discussed as well. So. Um, with that said, thanks for everyone's listening and attention. And until the next interview goes live, um, take care.